It's good to be with you, church family. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and uh, the opportunity to just reflect on the many things that you have to be grateful for on account of God's goodness. And uh, it is normally uh, this particular Sunday, that first Sunday following Thanksgiving, that also coincides with the first Sunday of Advent, but this is an unusual year in that there are actually five Sundays uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, so we will begin our Advent wreath next Sunday. But in the event any of you are wondering whether it is still uh, okay to decorate for Christmas, the answer is yes. You won't find this in any church lectionary or uh, the writings of the church fathers, but I'm pretty sure the appropriate time to begin decorating is any time after Santa appears at the close of the Macy's Day Parade. So around noon on Thursday, and I know some of you uh, want to jump the gun on that. You might take exception to me, even members of my own house. Uh, but good thing the, the theme of our series is united, right? So we'll, we'll extend you some grace here. Uh, if, if you do have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Our text today is only four verses long, but before we turn our attention there, let me situate you in the larger context. In the city of Corinth, there were temples to various gods, and in these pagan temples, animals were offered in sacrifice. And as a result, these temples functioned as both uh, butcher shops and banqueting halls. And what I mean by that is oftentimes uh, the meat from the sacrifice was then turned around and it was sold in the marketplace. Or following uh, the sacrifice, the meat was then consumed in uh, uh, the banquet hall that adjoined the temple. And beginning in chapter 8, Paul urges believers not to eat in these pagan temples because that practice could be injurious to the faith of a weaker brother. And then he offers himself as an example of someone giving up something that's a basic right for the spiritual edification of others. At the start of chapter 9, he says, am I not free? And then he goes on to discuss some of the basic rights that he would be entitled to, rights uh, even some other apostles freely enjoyed before saying this. But I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And then he goes on to say in, in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why does he do this? Help me out here. Let's read it together. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You follow the point that that Paul is making here. He voluntarily foregoes some rights for one reason. You probably picked up on it, didn't you? The advancement of the gospel. 
He wants to see spiritually lost people find salvation in Jesus. And if that means he has to make some sacrifices, what he's saying is so be it. Now, what point of view are these verses written in? Is he writing in first person, second person, or third person? Let's say it. He's writing in first person, isn't he? He's talking about himself. But notice the shift that takes place as we continue. Pick me up now in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul is addressing us. He's, he's urging his readers to imitate his example. And, and to spur us on, he employs a metaphor. He borrows from the world of athletics. And he says the Christian life can be likened to a race. If you're taking notes, this is the first one on the back of your bulletin. And this is a metaphor that would have struck a chord with his original audience because Corinth was host to the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games in terms of popularity. The games were comprised of six basic events. You had wrestling, you had jumping, boxing, hurling the javelin, throwing the discus, and running. Uh, held every two years, these games were extravagant festivals of religion and athletics and the arts, attracting thousands of competitors and spectators from all over the empire. Its sponsors and greater athletes were honored in the region with monuments and statues and uh, real estate on the cover of their weedy cereals boxes. It, it was all a very big deal. The highest honor, it was said in Corinth, was to be named leader of the games. And it seems likely that Paul's time in Corinth during his second missionary journey would have overlapped with these games. And so it's no surprise that he would borrow some imagery from the games to drive home a point. If Paul were writing to our church, he might reference our annual 5K. I know many of you probably over the past 12 years have uh, participated in Pastor David Holcomb's Run for God, or you've, uh, you've volunteered, you've, you've participated in that culminating event, our Rock 5K. And by the way, we will have a 13th annual Rock 5K. You can go ahead and make a mental note now. May 11th will benefit Pivot Ministries. But even, even if you've never participated in that 5K, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen a race on TV and you have some sense of how this works. There's a starting line and there's a finish line, and the goal is to get from the starting line to the finish line as quickly as possible. And with this picture in mind, we're invited to think about the Christian race as being analogous to participating in that kind of race. And as the apostle flushes out the metaphor, he, he answers three critical questions. The first one is pretty simple. If the Christian life is like a race, well, how should we run that race? See if you can pick up the answer as we look once more at verse 24 here. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? What does he say here? Let's say it together. So run that you may obtain it. This last sentence right there that we just read together, that's the one command in the whole passage. This is the main point of the metaphor and everything else serves to support it. We are exhorted to run to win. We are to strive for the prize. But I realize some explanation is helpful here. You might wonder, okay, is, is Paul insinuating that the Christian life is, is like this competitive event? And man, we, we, we should seek to outrun other believers. You should seek to outrun them so that you can receive the lone prize and everyone else can experience the agony of defeat. Is the Bible teaching here that God is going to give out one medal and it could go to, oh, I don't know, Billy Graham, maybe Mother Teresa, maybe Pastor David Beatty, maybe, maybe one of the missionaries who's serving overseas, or maybe, just maybe, it could go to you if you can outrun them. That'd be a little disheartening, wouldn't it? And fortunately, that's not the point being made. The, the, the crux of the argument is that simply entering the race does not automatically qualify one as a winner. Uh, we read the words, so run, because the emphasis isn't on the winning per se, but on the manner we are to run. Or we could say the, the effort that's required to win. Uh, to put this in another way, the the appeal being made is do your very best to finish well. If Paul were writing to a modern audience like us, more acquainted with uh, you know, soccer or football than track races, I think he might have said it this way. So compete in such a way that you leave it all on the field. You've heard that one before, right? He's saying give it your all. Go empty the tank. We, we can't go ambling around the track like we're out for a leisure stroll around the park and, and think we're going to automatically receive a prize. He's saying we're, we're to run as if there's no such thing as participation trophies. And yet, in God's economy, we know this, that everyone who enters the race is still eligible to win, even though there's no such thing as participation trophies. We, we know this because elsewhere, Paul writes... I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he goes on to say, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to who? Help me out here. What does it say? All who have loved his appearing. God holds out the possibility that there can be a multitude of victors in the Christian life. But Paul just doesn't leave it here. He, he develops the analogy, and now as he does, he answers the, the question that would logically follow. Well, what, what's needed to win the race? How do we pull that off? Well, look with me once more at the passage. After that command, so run that you may obtain it, we find these words, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He goes on to say, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. 
In other words, he's just not out there running wherever he wants to, meandering about the track. He's intentional and heading towards that finish line, and he mixes metaphors there. It's the image of, of climbing in a ring, and he says, I'm not just in there shadow boxing the opponent. I'm trying to land blows. Again, he's being intentional. He says, but I, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. So what's needed to win the race? Well, in, in a word, discipline. We could also say self-control or self-restraint or a willingness to endure hardship. We know from ancient literature that the athletes and their trainers before participating in the Olympic Games, they swore an oath upon, are you ready for this? Boar's flesh. (laughs) How about that? Uh, And the oath they took was that for 10 successive months, they would strictly follow the regulations for training. Those regulations entailed a rigid diet. They were expected to eat differently. They avoided desserts and cold water and took wine sparingly. And there was almost assuredly no chocolate pecan pie for Thanksgiving. There was rigorous training for the building up of strength. Uh, they, they were expected to keep away from lavish living with the thought that the more strenuously they exerted themselves in training, the greater their hope of victory. And it's the same way today, isn't it? If you or anyone you know has ever trained seriously for an athletic contest, like a, like a race or a, a triathlon or maybe the CrossFit Games, you know it involves sacrifice. Students, those of you who are involved in competitive sports, you know a thing or two about the personal costs necessary to becoming faster or stronger or better at your sport. You might have to forego late-night parties and sleepovers. You have to discipline your body to wake up early. You have to force yourself to get in that last rep or that last lap. Even when your heart rate is racing and your lungs are burning and your body's screaming for oxygen and, and it just wants to stop. On Friday, two days ago, I, I ran into a, a college swimmer at the YMCA. And I said to him, I guess coach didn't give you Thanksgiving break off. And he said, no, I, I still have to do a short workout. I said, oh, what's, what's a short workout? He said, oh, it'll only take me about an hour. Made me wonder, like, okay, what's a normal workout? And he said, oh, that's two hours. And, uh, and then there's a lift in the morning as well that's mandatory. So two workouts a day. Um, and uh, here he is in the pool on Friday, and everybody else is watching football or shopping. And it's because he knows that dis- discipline is essential if he wants to win the prize. Since I know most of us aren't D1 athletes, let me put this another way. Let's say it's the morning of the Rock 5K, and you head into your kitchen, and there on the counter in the glass pedestal stand, there's leftovers from last night's dessert, a decadent three-layer chocolate cake. You're a little hungry. I mean, it's been like 10 hours since you had anything. Let me tell you, you, you... You can polish off that cake. You can put down all three slices. And then maybe on your, on your way to the church, you pass Krispy Kreme and that hot now light comes on. You can pull in and you, you can top off with like 
a half a dozen glazed donuts. And then you can, you can go wash it all down if you're thirsty with a strawberry banana milkshake. But when that starting pistol goes off and the race starts, do you think you're going to run a PR? Not a chance. If you want to perform your very best, you know the importance of self-restraint in terms of your diet and your hydration and your sleep plan. Now, I want to be clear here. The Bible is not promoting asceticism. Paul isn't championing abstinence from all worldly pleasure in order to obtain some sort of higher spiritual plane. Don't take these verses to mean that you should go live in a cave without any furniture as simply as possible and subsist on the smallest amount of food possible. The point here is that in the same way a runner is going to voluntarily forego feasting on chocolate cake the morning of a big race, there should be instances where we as Christians, if we want to see the gospel advance, where we will exercise discipline and voluntarily make sacrifices. If, if Paul were writing to a modern audience, you know what he might have said instead of every athlete exercises self-control? He might have said, every athlete knows, say it with me, no pain, no gain. You've heard it before. If you want to win, you know you're going to have to get a little uncomfortable. You're going to have to push past your comfort zone and training and you're going to have to tell your body no on occasion. And if you're not willing to endure a little discomfort, if you say yes to everything your body craves, if you're a slave to your body instead of making your body a slave to you, then you're probably not going to win. Unless it's like cornhole or bass fishing or curling or some other sport that comes on ESPN in the wee hours of the morning. But if it's a real sport... No pain, no gain holds true. And, and this invites some reflection. If you'd say, well, yeah, I, I want to be serious about my faith. Well, the question I want to ask you is, is, is there evidence of self-denial for the sake of the gospel? Are, are there some areas of your life that you can point to and say, this is, this is sort of proof that I'm racing for the prize? Can you say, well, you know, compared to my financial peers, I don't drive as nice as car or I don't buy as many clothes because of the, the financial sacrifices that I've purposed to make to help advance the gospel. Or maybe can you say, well, I don't, I don't play as much golf or I don't watch as much TV as my coworkers or peers because, well, on Saturday mornings I have the standing commitment. I go and serve at City Lights or I'm mentoring over at Salem Pregnancy Care Center. This passage reminds me of a, of a man in our church. Uh, he was a dad at the time. This is about 11 years ago. He's since moved. But he had an interest in serving in the youth ministry. But there was one little hang-up. Rock Youth met on Sunday afternoons. And this guy loved football. I mean, he was big time into the NFL. And he was reluctant to give that up. But eventually, he decided to do exactly what is commended in this metaphor. And he set aside that pleasure that he got from watching football in hopes of seeing students come to, to know Jesus and to grow in their faith. For the sake of the gospel, he voluntarily gave up his me time. 
on Sunday afternoon. If you want to run to win, there should be some evidence of discipline and personal sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for the possibility of helping others come to know Jesus. And maybe for some of you that, that just, you know, you've, you've got a kid right now in, uh, in Noah's Ark or in Kids Rock, and maybe that sacrifice for you should look like giving an hour on Sunday mornings to help your kids and their peers grow in their understanding of God's word. Maybe, maybe for some of you that looks, giving an hour, looks like giving an hour of your week to go mentor someone at the Winston-Salem Street School. I, I, I don't know what it's going to entail for everyone, but here's what I know. I know. The cost of victory is usually measured in terms of the sacrifice put forth. And those who want to win the prize know that pursuing comfort and ease is not the pathway to victory. And you might say, whoa, I don't really know if I like the idea of sacrifice and hardship and self-restraint. I mean, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. This reminds me of a friend of mine. Uh, he goes to church here, and his wife is Miss Fitness. Like, she's certified to teach all those Les Mills classes at the Y. Uh, she spends a lot of time at the gym. I don't think he has been to the gym in years. It's not really his thing, but he's disciplined in other areas of his life. He's a gifted musician. He's taught himself to play multiple instruments. And he once said to me, he said, you know, my wife says no pain, no gain. And I just say, no pain, no pain. Like, <laughs> it's a no-brainer to him. Why, why, why would he want to do that? And, and, and you know, maybe you, you're thinking the same thing spiritually. You'd say, I've got a good thing going. You know, Jesus fits nicely into this one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings. Why, why would I want to disrupt that? Why, why run to win if it's going to entail hardship and sacrifice? Well, that's a good question. And the apostle gives us an answer. Look with me once more at our passage. He says this. After he says every athlete exercises self-control in all things, he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And he goes on to say, that, that he disciplines his body and he keeps it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Why, why do we run to win? Because of the imperishable reward. Just like in our modern Olympics, following the, the conclusion of a race in ancient times, there was an award ceremony. In the Isthmian Games, the victor received a wreath uh, most likely made out of withered celery or pine. And Paul, he draws a contrast between that award ceremony and the ceremony that will one day happen at the return of Jesus. And he says that the Isthmian Games, they, they can't hold a candle to the award that Jesus is going to give out. Because the award Jesus bestows is going to be far superior. His award is eternal in nature. 1 Peter 5.4 describes it as an unfading crown of glory. And Paul says, let's not disqualify ourselves from receiving that prize. 
don't think he's writing here talking about the eternal security of believers. That's not the point of this passage. The, uh, I don't take this to mean that we can somehow lose our position in Christ. He's writing to exhort his readers. And he says, let's not do anything that could jeopardize our ability to be present at that award ceremony and be standing on the podium. If Paul were writing to a modern audience, you know the slogan he might lift to underscore this point? You've probably seen this one maybe hanging somewhere in the fitness room. Pain is temporary. Victory is eternal. Two days ago, I received an email uh, from some missionaries our church has supported and they're serving in a very difficult part of the world, uh, an area where, where Christians are often persecuted. And uh, I want to read part of what they wrote. They said, often when we hear the word sacrifice, we view it as a negative term. We tend to focus on the wrong side of sacrifice. We place our focus on what we are losing instead of shifting our focus to see what we gain from it. The word sacrifice does not have to come with dread and negative feelings. Instead of viewing sacrifice as an earthly loss, what if we viewed it as a heavenly gain? That's the point that's being made in this metaphor. We are invited to envision that, that future award ceremony which will take place in heaven and to picture ourselves on the podium. Whether you're an athlete or not, I suspect all of us know something about the importance of sacrifice in order to attain a goal. I mean, students, how many of you have sacrificed sleep or a night out with friends in, or, in order to study in hopes of getting a better grade and getting into a better college? I'm not seeking to downplay the importance of a good education, but in comparison to what God has to offer, would you be willing to make similar sacrifices for the sake of the gospel? Parents, likewise, how many of you have sacrificed sleep and time and money and comfort to help your children get ahead of school or to pursue the, the, the sport of their choosing? And again, I'm, I'm not seeking to downplay the importance of investing in our children but when we think about those who are spiritually lost and the eternal rewards God has to offer, would you be willing to sacrifice in similar ways to help people come to know Jesus? Those of you who are in the middle of your careers, how many of you have sacrificed evenings or portions of your weekend or missed dinners in hopes of excelling in your career? I'm not seeking to downplay the importance of having a good work ethic, but by way of comparison, are you willing to make similar sacrifices for the advancement of the gospel? Remember that old commercial, what would you do for a Klondike bar? I think that's sort of like uh, the question this metaphor is asking us. What would you do for the sake of the gospel? What would you be willing to offer up? And if we're willing to make sacrifices in other areas of our life for these ephemeral rewards, does it not make sense to imitate the apostle and to make similar sacrifices for the sake of the gospel and a reward that will never fade away?
As we prepare to close, I have just two questions by way of application. The first is, is pretty simple, but it's really important. In keeping with our metaphor, I'd ask you, have you entered this race? That is to say, have you embraced the gospel, the good news of Jesus dying in your place for your sins so that you can be rightly related to God? This passage isn't an exhortation to, to go out and to try harder, to, to live a more virtuous life, to do more good deeds. And this passage is an exhortation to those who are already Christians to live out that new identity as, as servants and stewards of God. And the only way we can do that is with the help of the Holy Spirit. Running to win involves placing our faith in Jesus and when that happens, what happens is he, he fills us with his spirit so that we have the strength to go and to share with him in his sufferings and, and to run well. And if you've never done that, if you've never made that decision, let, let today be the day. After the service is over, at the tables in the back, there will be people that would welcome the opportunity uh, to pray with you and to guide you and into how you can have assurance of salvation and how you could know that you're, you are in the race. The second question is for those of us who are believers, and that question is this. Would you say right now that you're running aimlessly or you're running intentionally? And if you'd say you're running intentionally, I'd say, man, I I hope this message is an encouragement for you to to press on, to keep it up, to, to not grow weary in doing well. But if you'd say, no, I, I, you know, I, I see how easy it is to, to get off track and to wander. And I, you know, I might be running right now in such a way that I'm more interested in having a good time than giving it my all. Maybe, you know, it's the equivalent of, of stopping in the aid station and where we should go in there just to recharge so we can get some energy to go back out and run well sort of said, hey, it's kind of comfortable in here and you've begun to camp out or you're meandering and uh, when it's convenient, when everything feels right, you break out into a little trot sometimes, but you're mainly interested in enjoying the experience out there than giving it your all, exerting yourself, expending yourself for the sake of the prize. And, and if that's you, if you'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not running as intentionally as I should. Let me just give you a little encouragement. This was an encouragement to me because uh, I came to the same conclusion as I inventoried my life. I realized that the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the people in Corinth. These weren't exactly super saints. Here, here's what we know about the church in Corinth. There's all the problems we're coming across as we're reading this book. There was sexual immorality, there was pride, there was selfishness, there was division in the church. And you know what Paul says to them? He says this, they do it, he's talking about the athletes, he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath. This is what's so interesting to me, but we, an imperishable. Paul includes them. He says, come on, let's go. You're not out of the race. Don't feel like you've, you've, you've blown it. 
you can still win the prize. And if you feel like, man, you've just been, been running aimlessly and you've, you've squandered time, you've wasted some years, I, I take this to mean that it's never too late to begin running intentionally. Paul tells those in Corinth that they've just blown it for like three to five years. He said that, that, that reward can still be yours. We've all seen the Olympics, Right? You, you can picture that award ceremony following the conclusion of event. You can envision the athlete standing there atop the podium, brimming with pride and maybe even tears of joy streaming down her cheeks as her name is called and the fans applaud and honor has brought to her country as her anthem is played. And you know what Paul says right here in this passage? He says, that, that can be you and I one day. That can be us if we run to win, if we run intentionally, if we're willing to make some sacrifices and have a little discipline, if we're willing to let the Spirit work through us. That can be us. On the heels of what I know was a, a restful weekend for many, I feel like um, I just, you know, maybe delivered a little bit of a challenging word, and that certainly isn't my intent when I stand up here to, to dial up the intensity. But as I spent some time in this passage, I do feel like it's a challenging metaphor, and if we take it seriously, that it, it needs to invite some self-reflection. And, and it probably means that there might need to be some recalibration of priorities and thinking about how we're allocating our resources and time if we want to be serious about running to win. And I would tell us if we do it, it's totally going to be worth it. And uh, I think I'm not alone in saying that um, it would be nice one day to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And if that's you, if that's what you'd long for as well, I just want to in invite you right now and, and, and join me in this prayer as we ask God for help in this. Our Father in heaven, we come before you, and uh, we would invite your word to be like a divine x-ray machine that would examine our lives. Lord, show us where we're being a little aimless. Lord, put your finger on the areas where you would like to see more discipline where we need to embrace sacrifice for the sake of your gospel so that we can one day receive the prize. Thank you that you would even invite us to have a role in helping to expand your rule and your reign. Thank you for making us stewards of the gospel. And Lord, it is our desire that we would not live in a way that would disqualify us from winning the prize, but that we would be found faithful. And that we would, we would please you with this opportunity that you've entrusted to us. So, and so I pray that by your spirit that you would quicken in each one of us a greater desire to run well. And Lord, when we're tempted to drift, I pray that you would put in front of us that image that you would help us to picture the award ceremony that will one day take place. 
And may that strengthen us. Work in us what is pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.